Oh, good morning, uh, friends at Mafra. Uh, good to be back with you per medium of the video. Uh, I'll be back uh, in person on the second weekend in March. Um, so I look forward to that. But in the meantime, we're going to continue our series of talks in the book of Acts. So please have uh, the book of Acts chapter 17 open and then we'll, um, we'll read that in a moment. We'll pray first. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. And we pray today that as we come to it, that you would uh, open your word to us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open our minds and we pray that you would open our hearts to receive these things, to believe them, and then to uh, be like the people that we read about today who acted on them in faith. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've called today's talk, uh, The World Turned Upside Down, and I think what I'm going to do is to read uh, just brief sections of it and then offer some thoughts about that as, as we proceed through. So our reading today is Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 to 15. And uh, we're into what is known as Paul's second missionary journey. So last week we saw the beginnings of that missionary journey and uh, we, we noted that uh, Paul received a vision when he was in the ancient city of Troas and that vision was to the effect that a man from Macedonia uh, appealed to Paul to come over and help us. And so he went from Troas into the region of Macedonia and of course, this represents the advance of the gospel from Asia into Europe for the very, very first time. So this is a historical event. I think sometimes as Christians, you know, we might read other histories and we sort of think that we put the Bible in a separate category. But this is as historical as anything from the ancient world. Uh, we might be among those who think that history doesn't matter that much. Henry Ford, the great uh, car manufacturer, said history is bunk. Well, no, it's not. History matters. We are all products of our history. Uh, it's it's because somebody told somebody that told somebody that you and I are here reading the Bible. We've become Christians because of the, the ministry that began all those years ago when the gospel was taken faithfully from Europe, from Asia into Europe. Um, history matters. And, and these things are real historical markers of events that shook the world. So they've gone into Macedonia, preached first at Philippi, and then we're going to move on into the reading. But there's something quite interesting that happens here. Last week I spoke about how we noted the emergence of Luke, the author of Acts. He, he wrote the book of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. He meant the two to be read together. And there are three passages in the book of Acts where he starts to write in the first person plural, we or us. And so you see that first of all in chapter 16. So when they get into Macedonia, into Philippi, all of a sudden the voice changes. Luke is with them. He's an eyewitness to what he's describing. And then we'll find two more passages like that later in the book. And so we read in chapter 16, uh, as we were going to the place of prayer, the slave girl who had a spirit divination, a spirit of divination, she followed Paul and us. So Luke is writing as an eyewitness. But by the time you get to the beginning of chapter 17, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. The author has disappeared. Where's Luke gone? Well, we're not told but it seems pretty certain that he stayed in Philippi. Why would he have done that? Probably because Paul wanted him to stay behind and help the new Philippian Christians. Probably Luke was left there to establish them in the faith. So we move on. The gospel's gone into, um, into Europe. Uh, chapter 17, verse 1, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue. Now, if you look at the scale on the map here, that's quite a journey. Uh, it's perhaps about 150 kilometres. It's certainly over 100, 100 kilometres, all on foot. 
all traversed in the space of one sentence. Um, so they've come to Thessalonica. Uh, it's, it's a big effort that Paul's putting in to take the gospel into Europe. It cost him greatly. And it's because of him and others like him that we've had the message passed on to us. And so we read there, there was a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica. And at verse two, Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So Paul moves on from Philippi to Thessalonica. It was always his custom, as we read here, to go to the synagogue first. Now you read that over and over again in the book of Acts, starting at chapter 13, verse 5, all the way through to chapter 24. When Paul went to a new place, if there was a synagogue, he would preach there first because those people had received the the scriptures, the word of God, and they should have been on the lookout for the Messiah, the Christ that Paul was proclaiming. Now, why go to the synagogue first? Well, uh, Jesus set a pattern for this uh, with his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 when he sends the the 12 disciples out on their first big preaching mission. He said to them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Paul and Barnabas on their first preaching mission adopted a very similar uh, practice. So we read in Acts 13.46 of Paul and Barnabas, they said to the, the synagogue that they were preaching at in Antioch, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But the reaction in Antioch was adverse. And so they added, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So the message was always going to be for the Gentiles, but it made sense to proclaim it first to the Jews. And if they reacted adversely, if they were negative, if they rejected it, then of course, Paul and his other messengers would go to the Gentiles. Now that phrase is repeated twice more in the book of Acts, and it seems significant because it's the first instance of of a big pattern of Jewish rejection of their Messiah, which grieved Paul and broke his heart, as you can read in the book of Romans. Now, synagogues were located right throughout the Mediterranean region, and so it made sense for Paul to go there. He would often get a hearing, uh, even if they didn't like what he had to say at the end of it, he would get a hearing. And so it made sense, it was tactical and strategic for him to go to these places first of all. Now, he did three Sabbaths worth of ministry there. That's not all the ministry he did in Thessalonica because the results are just too profound to have taken place just over three Sabbaths. But that was all he got to do in the synagogue and it was after that that he shifted his attention to ministering to the Gentiles. Another significant thing about Paul's habit was that he went where the gospel could be planted strategically. And so, yes, he went to the synagogues first, but he went to Thessalonica because it was strategically located on a very, very important road in the Roman Empire the Via Ignatia or the the Ignatian Way. And it ran all the way from the the city called Byzantium, which these days is called Istanbul in what we call Turkey, and all the way through to the the Italian peninsula. And it was a great place for traders to cross backwards and forwards. And so if the gospel took root in Thessalonica, then other people who heard it there would take it to their hometowns on these trading routes. Paul was a strategic thinker about where the gospel should go. So the Ignatian Way is still there. 
uh, it's a road so significant that it's still at the uh, the middle of what remains of Thessalonica today. These days, if you went to modern Greece, Thessalonica is called Salonica. And uh, this gate, this uh, ancient triumphal arch, uh, is still there. And the main street of Thessalonica or Salonica continues to be what remains of that ancient road, the Ignatian Way. So Paul planted where the gospel could take root and go further. He was a strategic thinker. But Paul's method in going to the synagogue was something that didn't alter either. He had a process, he had a plan that he followed. And we read it there that he explained, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It's not pie in the sky, fairy tale stuff. It's a reasonable faith because it's anchored in history and because it makes sense. It's logical. It explains the reality that we experience. And so therefore, it's good to be able to get to know the faith to the point where we too can share it reasonably. Not just something that we've come to believe and we can't defend in any way. Christians need to be able to defend the faith to show why other people should believe it just on the basis of logic. Because it does. It makes sense. It makes better sense than anything. So Paul's method began with reasoning from the scriptures and then he moved on to explaining. Now that word explaining is an interesting one because it's used in significant places uh, in Luke's writings. So in Luke chapter 24 verse 32, also in chapter 44, uh, chapter verse 44, and then in Acts 16, we find that very same word used and sometimes translated differently. But the word that's translated explain in Acts 17 literally means to open what has up until now been closed. To open what has up until now been closed, like opening a door. So in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, on the day that he's been raised from the dead, we find that famous story of him walking along the road and falling into step with two disciples who were dismayed at what had taken place in Jerusalem. And he got talking with them. And he broke bread with them. And then they realized that the person that they were breaking bread with was none other than the risen Lord Jesus. They'd seen him crucified. Now they knew him to be alive. And so they said to each other in Luke 24, 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The scriptures have to be opened. Jesus opened the scriptures to them. He revealed what had up until then been closed to them. But then a little later in the same chapter, Luke 24, Jesus appears to his disciples. They're demoralized. They're upset. They've seen him crucified. Now they're wondering what they're going to do. But Jesus appears to them in a room and he speaks to them. And we're told there that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And his opening of the mind came from opening the scriptures so that they could see that it was necessary that Jesus suffered and died But even the resurrection was predicted in the Old Testament if they knew where to look and if they knew how to read scripture properly. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He explained it. And so they could see the places in the Old Testament that were prefiguring the events that had just taken place in Jerusalem. But then the third use that Luke makes of it is in the passage we looked at last week where Lydia, the seller of purple cloth from Thyatira, who was the first European convert at the place of prayer by the river there in Philippi, we're told that the Lord opened her heart. And so this idea of opening, it's the very same word to explain the scriptures as Paul did in Thessalonica is to open the scriptures. And so the scriptures are opened 
And when the scriptures are opened, minds are opened. And when minds are opened, because the scriptures are opened, hearts are opened. And all these three are the activities of the Lord Jesus himself by his spirit. The scriptures are opened, minds are opened, hearts are opened. And that's what happened in Thessalonica when Paul explained the word. And so he went on and he was proving to the people that Jesus was the Christ. He commended that idea to them. He entrusted it to them. But it was the idea was that it was necessary. It was inevitable. It had to happen. And if they'd understood the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, they would have realised that it was written into their, the articles of their faith that it was necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, the King that they'd been waiting for, the Anointed One of God, he had to suffer and he had to rise again. Now, Jewish expectations, I'm sure you know, and you've heard it many times, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a new king in the line of David, but they wanted him to be a warrior king. They had no concept that the Messiah was going to suffer. It had not entered into their thinking. So it was a big surprise to Jews to be told that the, or to, to, to witness Jesus being crucified. Um, and so Paul, the train of thought that he goes through, his method, he explains, he proves that it was necessary that Christ died and was raised again. And all of this was to prove that he was the Messiah. He was the Christ, the, the anointed, the promised one of God. But he did that by proving that it was necessary from the Old Testament that the Christ had to suffer and then rise. Now, that's a controversial thing for Jews, which is why it was rejected so roundly by so many of them. Because in the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 21, we're told, and it's echoed in Galatians 3, that anyone who was hung on a tree, anyone who was hung up, was under God's curse. And so for a Jew looking on at the events on Golgotha that day, on that first Good Friday, anyone looking on would have interpreted what was happening as this man is under God's curse. That doesn't look like what they were expecting in a Messiah. And so Paul had to go into the Old Testament scriptures to show no. If you'd read them carefully, it was entirely predicted. These are the things that God said must happen. And so one of the texts that he would have used, and it's already been explored earlier on in the book of Acts, is Isaiah 53. Now, there are many, many other places that Paul would have gone to or could have gone to in explaining these things to people who knew the, uh, the Jewish scriptures. But Isaiah 53 tells us, amongst other things, that he, that's the servant of Yahweh, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. As I say, the, the people of Paul's day were expecting a Messiah, but they wanted a king in the line of David. They didn't realise, as they or they hadn't put the pieces together, that the king in the line of David in the book of Isaiah is also the servant who suffers for the sins of the whole world. He suffers as a representative. So he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And he through his sacrifice, made many to be accounted righteous. That would have been at the very heart of what Paul was preaching in Thessalonica. And it was to that that people responded with open minds and then open hearts. And so the reaction we can read about in verses 4 to 9. We read that some were persuaded and they joined the little apostolic band. They knit themselves together with them. They decided to come on board with this message. They assented to it. And they decided to reorder their lives around what it implied. 
and we're told that a great many devout Greeks. So these are people who had probably been attracted to the worship of Yahweh, Israel's God, and had come into the life of the synagogue without ever becoming fully circumcised Jews. They were people who were showing an interest in Israel's God, devout Greeks, but also a few leading women. And we're not entirely sure what that means, but Lydia was probably a leading woman because she was a seller of the expensive purple cloth. And so not a few leading women. So there's a, a, a tiny little number of people that have received this message. Their, their minds and their hearts have been opened as Paul reasons from the scriptures. But then in verse 5 we read, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, the people who hang around in the marketplace, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So there are Jewish people there who are aghast at the message that Paul's preaching. They reject it utterly. They say, this is not the Messiah we want to hear about. And so rather than just listening reasonably and disagreeing politely, they grab these rabble from people just mooching about in the, in the marketplace waiting for trouble to happen, probably pretty happy to have some trouble to happen. They form a mob, they cause a riot, but beyond that, they make dangerous and just plain untrue accusations. They say that these men are turning the world upside down and they're talking about things that say that they're advocating a king other than Caesar. In other words, they're promoting an insurrection. These people are disloyal to the ruling authorities. Now, one of the probable reasons why Luke wrote Acts the way he did was to show that the Christian faith was no threat to an orderly Roman society. And yet these people are saying that this represented a real threat, not just to Paul's safety, but also to the progress of the whole Christian mission. Because if the Romans had got the idea that these men were fomenting uh, rebellion and chaos and disorder, they would have stamped it out very quickly and there was only a very few of them. And so this is another turning point. This is a momentous point here. But it happens again and again where Jews tell lies against Paul for the purpose of trying to crush this movement of which they're so opposed. And so in, in verse 10, we read that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So same again, same process over again. Notice the brothers... By now, there's enough believers in the Lord Jesus that Paul has a number of brothers who are taking care of him and making sure that he's transported safely away from the scene of this great disturbance, away from the, uh, the scene of great risk to him. And so we move on to the description of Paul's mission in Berea. Uh, and we read there in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, 
agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So it's the same method. What about the reaction? Is it different? Well, it's comparable, but there are some different elements. They went, first of all, to the synagogue. This was Paul's method, his custom and habit. But they received a a better hearing because the Bereans were of more noble character. Uh, They were honourable. They were upright. They gave him a hearing. We're told that they received the word eagerly. So their hearts were open to receive this word that Paul brought. They examined the scriptures daily and they looked into these things. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Well, these things is a shorthand way of saying that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise according to the scriptures. They examined the scriptures daily to see if the scriptures supported the idea that Paul proposed that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the one that God had promised, the one that they were so longing for. Now, the Bereans are often and rightly held up as a great example to to all Christians everywhere, Uh, people who receive the word eagerly and who study it intently day by day to determine the, the facts of the faith. Uh, They provide a great example to us even today. Uh, And so you quite often hear uh, of churches who call themselves the Berean Christian Fellowship or something like that. They're a great example to us of people that did these things, received the word, examined the scriptures to, to, to prove to themselves that what Paul was saying was right. It's an attitude that we should all bring when we come to the scripture, when we hear the scripture, examine it to show that these things are true. And so we're told there that many believed high-standing Greek women and men. It was perhaps a more successful uh, adventure in numbers than what had taken place in Thessalonica. But again, it was a diverse crowd. There were some Jews, there were Greeks, there were men and women. Now, have you seen the film The Dead Poets Society? It came out in 1989, wonderful film, directed by the Australian Bruce Berefitt, starred Robin Williams as the charismatic teacher Mr Keating. And he was teaching at at an elite boys' school, teaching them English literature. And he wanted to fire them up about the beauty of literature and especially of poetry. He wanted to get their imaginations and their hearts racing. And so he employed all sorts of interesting teaching techniques, which really did have quite an effect on his pupils. But as he's teaching them one day, he got them to look at the first chapter of their poetry text. And it had this mathematical formula for working out whether a poem was any good or not. And he said, boys, rip it out, rip it out. And so these boys come from good homes and they pay good money for this book and they're not quite sure what to do, but one by one they begin to do it. He says, boys, rip it out. Some are wondering, some are not quite sure, some go to it quite eagerly. But he says, that chapter's got nothing to teach you. Let's just read the poems instead. Well, one of my great heroes in the faith, Alec Mateer, a wonderful uh, British commentator, He had a a beautiful little book called Loving the Old Testament, which I recommend highly. Uh, It's only short, but it'll really help you to get what's going on in the Old Testament. And he said this, if you've got a dividing page between the Old Testament and the New Testament, he said, in your mind, imagine tearing it out. He says, the dividing page is a waste of paper and print. It's separating the inseparable, dividing the indivisible. The Bible is one book. The Bible's two parts resemble a two-act play, he says. If we only had act one of the play, 
we might ask, well, where's this going? But if only only had Act 2, we might ask, well, where's it come from? And the point that he wants to make is that without the Old Testament, we would not know Jesus properly. And that's what Paul's doing. You see, the Bible is one book. Paul's proving from the first part of the scriptures that the one who's revealed so comprehensively in the second part of the scriptures is anticipated in these early parts. We can't understand the Old Testament without the new, but we can't understand the new without the old. It's one book with one story that leads to this conclusion that Jesus is God the Son, come from heaven to be Israel's Messiah, the world's King and its Saviour. We're all familiar with death notices in newspapers, although people don't seem to read the newspapers so much anymore. But it was said of my great-grandfather, who was a Jew. It was said of him that he was, in his death notice, it was said of him that he was converted before ever reading a word of the New Testament. Now, I never met him. I'm not quite sure how it worked out. But I'm guessing that passages like Isaiah 53 must have left him with so many questions that he must have known just enough about Jesus from growing up in England that he put two and two together and realised that only someone like Jesus could have fulfilled what Isaiah 53 was pointing towards, someone who would pay with their life for the sins of the whole world. It was recorded in his death notice, Jacob Turner of England, that he was converted before ever reading a word of the New Testament. He, like Paul, was convinced from what we call the Old Testament, that Christ is the world's Messiah. But we read there that when Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they did what they'd done in Thessalonica and they stirred people up because they were determined to put a stop to his preaching. They were determined to put a stop to people believing. And so brothers in Berea took Silas and Paul and they got Paul down as far as Athens. And so that's the next movement of the book of Acts, the the centre of learning of the ancient world, the great university city of of Athens. Uh, Silas and Timothy, he asks to to come to him as quick as he could, but he left Silas and Timothy in in Berea to establish the Christians there. So that was a part of his pattern as well. It was generosity because he would have needed their help and yet he left them behind to help. He went to Athens on his own. But what fruit was there from this mission in Europe? It's good fun to connect the different parts of the New Testament, to connect Acts with the letters that were written by Paul and other early believers to these early churches. But what we can see is that the fruit of Paul's mission in Thessalonica then Berea was faith, genuine, saving, believing faith, but also terrible conflict that cost Paul and his companions very dearly. It threatened them physically and it it meant that they had to change plans and move on very hurriedly. Uh, It was an uncomfortable thing to be a bearer of this great good news and Paul paid a high price for it. But we read that in Thessalonica some Jews were persuaded, many devout Greeks and leading women. We read about the brothers. There were people established in the faith who now lent their assistance to Paul. But in Berea, we read that many Jews and high-standing Greek women and men were convinced of the message that Paul brought. But he faced violence and danger in both towns. It was a real mixed reaction but what was the fruit of it all well turn in your bibles to first thessalonians chapter one and so this is one of paul's earliest letters probably written about ad 51 
and he wrote it for the purpose of encouraging these new believers in such a volatile environment. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 2, after his greeting, Paul writes this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, and Paul knows it because he saw it, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Paul and his friends had stayed long enough that they earned a reputation and their reputation matched their message. And verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. So it cost the Thessalonian believers as well. They received the word in affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, which is where Athens is. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's Paul writing to the Thessalonian believers. They were well established in the faith in that short time that Paul was there and he left people with them. But he's able to speak of their work of faith, their labour of love, their steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus. But not only that, they went on and they told others. They took the message elsewhere. Paul had established the church on the Ignatian Way because it meant it was possible for the, for, for the Christian message to go out into other places. And it seems that they had been faithful in telling others about this good news, that Jesus really was the Christ, the Messiah. And it, their, their story had been heard all over the place. And they were prepared to put up with suffering and great affliction and they did so joyfully. And so they turned away from the things that had once entranced them and been their objects of worship from their idols. That must have been, he's talking about Gentiles there. And they longed for the coming of the Lord Jesus. They accepted fully the message that Paul preached. But notice how he finishes that little passage there. He talks about Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul, his friends and all of the new believers faced the wrath of their neighbours, the people around about them, the members of the synagogue, the, the shopkeepers, the people that they did business with. It wasn't hard to get a mob to assemble and do violence against the early believers in Christ. But they were prepared joyfully to put up with that while they waited for Jesus. And really the example to us is, do we put up with wrath now because we've been saved from the wrath to come? the wrath of rejecting Jesus the Messiah and facing God in his anger on Judgment Day. It'll be a terrible thing to say, oh, and I could do without Jesus on Judgment Day when the God of all the earth asks us what we did with his gift of our Saviour to save us from his wrath. So Paul and his methods saw the scriptures opened. The Holy Spirit opened people's minds to receive the message and hearts to believe the message and as a result of that these people's lives were changed 
and they were changed in such a way that meant that they were forbearing of terrible suffering. They lived this joy-filled, hope-filled life that meant that they could speak with conviction to other people that led them to putting their trust in Jesus too. What an example to us. Will the word of Christ go out in full conviction and in the power of the Holy Spirit from Mafra Community Church into the surrounding areas? Will you use your day-to-day contacts with friends and with family, with work colleagues, with people you meet to tell them that Jesus is the one who saves us from the wrath to come? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the courage of people like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, these others who went with your message into hostile territory, but they went in full conviction and they took that message to people. We thank you that you opened the hearts of some in Thessalonica and Berea to believe and we pray that you would help us to keep believing and not only that, to respond in obedience to the call on our life to be people who would uh, live patiently and joyously for you as we wait for Jesus to return but to live faithfully and obediently uh, for you in telling others this great saving message that so transformed us. Please help us to be bold. Please open our lips so that we can declare the wonder of these things to those who listen to us too. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks very much and I'll see you again soon.